Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. More than 100,000 Russian troops are now gathered on Ukraine's borders with trainloads of troops and equipment. For months before the war broke out, the world could watch as Russia's troops amassed on the borders of Ukraine. Uh, we have real concerns about uh, Russia's unusual military activity on the border uh, with Ukraine. It was no secret. Anyone with an internet connection could see very clear pictures of Vladimir Putin's forces, thanks to commercially available satellite images and posts on social media sites such as Telegram, TikTok or Twitter. On February the 18th, The Economist declared that a new era of transparent warfare was beckoning. Less than a week later, Russia's invasion of Ukraine had begun. Modern technology has enabled the world to watch the war in Ukraine in finer detail than any other conflict that has come before. How has open source intelligence, or OSINT, changed the way in which war is fought? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today, six months into the war in Ukraine, we'll be exploring how OSINT has shaped the conflict. How has the last six months changed the field of open source intelligence itself? And how close are intelligence sleuths on the internet to their dream of a more transparent world? To guide me through today's show, I'm joined by Shashank Joshi, The Economist's defense editor and our resident expert in open source intelligence. Shashank, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Alok. It's great to be here again. Now, first things first, can you just help people understand what open source intelligence is? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about intelligence, you think about secrets. You think about stuff that spy agencies have stolen. So that could be from human agents. It could be from million-dollar spy satellites or billion-dollar spy satellites orbiting the Earth. Open source intelligence is pretty much everything else. It's stuff that is, as the name suggests, openly available. So that could include everything from the images that you and I could look up on Google Earth just by opening up a browser, or it could be tracking your parents' flight coming into Heathrow on Flight Tracker, working out which gate it's coming to, which which terminal it's coming to. That's a kind of open source intelligence as well. It's all of that sort of information flooding out that is openly available to us and that gives us insight into some aspect of the world. 
Yeah, all that stuff from the 80s spy movies that we thought, wow, that's amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing to watch a flight uh, go along, which only the CIA can do? But now everyone can do that on an app very easily. Uh, it, it does feel like open source intelligence or OSINT has really come into its own during the recent conflict in Ukraine. And we'll come to that shortly, but I'm interested to know this. How has OSINT changed information gathering during wars in general? I mean, how did it take place in the past versus how it's happening now? Well, I think that it's turned wars into kind of fishbowls. You can see aspects of them that you could never have seen 25 years ago. In the build-up to the Ukraine war, Alok, you remember we had all these claims from Western governments sourced from their intelligence agencies about the Russian build-up on Ukraine's borders, reports of the number of battalions gathering in Belarus, reports of new Russian field hospitals being set up, which was perhaps an indication of offensive intent. 30 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to corroborate any of that. Now, we've been able to pull up images in fantastically high resolution, showing me individual Russian vehicles that I can count. And in some cases, I can even see the fuel tanks on the back or the length of the cannon. I can work out which specific battalion they're from. This is an unprecedented level of transparency. It's completely changed reporting on the build-up to war and on the war itself. Indeed, even the onset of war, because people watching Google Maps could see the invasion occurring before it was announced, because they could see the traffic jams building up just on the other side of the border as all of these Russian units mobilised and immediately entered into a logjam as they all hit the roads. And I think that that's incredible. It's a kind of level of forewarning, which would have been unimaginable in 1945 or even in the 1980s. And what about your own work? You know, reporting a war has always been a difficult thing. It's a miasma of information. It can be confusing. And now there's even more information. Has OSINT impacted the way you do your reporting of the war? It's made an enormous impact. I couldn't do the reporting I do without open source intelligence. A lot of what we know about who is where in Ukraine, about where the battle is taking place, it's from open source intelligence. Just to give you an example, as we're talking, the Ukrainians are beginning a counteroffensive in the southern province of Kherson, around Kherson city. Open source intelligence, which includes videos from Russian and Ukrainian soldiers, snippets of video footage of military vehicles on the move, satellite images, uh, all of these things, that is fundamental for me to understand what's going on in the field. When we're trying to understand how the Russian army is building up new volunteer battalions. We rely on open source footage posted to social media sites like Telegram, which is very popular in Russia, for instance, to look at the equipment that the new units are using. Are their rifles old or new? Are the tanks that they're using obsolete ones from the 1960s or are they modernised, sophisticated ones that might imply Russia is giving these new units some of their best kit? Open source is basically fundamental to all of that. Of course, old-fashioned reporting, talking to sources, talking to uh, government officials from all sides, talking to people who are secret sources who we don't talk about, that is still fundamental to reporting. But really, open sources are now vital for us to have an insight into the granular nitty-gritty of this campaign on the ground. The invasion of Ukraine has turned OSINT from something of a niche field, which only people like you, Shashank, knew about before, to one that a lot of people will probably now have heard of, or at least seen the results from. But Shashank, can you just take me through how these open source tools actually work? 
Well, this is something I reported on in a lot of detail last year before OSINT went mainstream. I was into OSINT before it was cool, Alok. <laughs> Over the last 20 years, this field has gone from a handful of curious, dogged, persistent individuals scouring satellite imagery to find niche things to a really powerful global force that's been used by human rights organizations, investigative journalists, and even governments who are setting up open source units of their own, realizing that actually not everything that's valuable in life is a deep secret. Some of these things are out there waiting to be found. I presented an episode of Babbage in August last year on exactly that topic. And for that show, I spoke to some of the individuals who are heavily involved in this enterprise, whether that be people looking for Chinese missile silos in the desert or people looking for corporate jets to try and predict mergers and acquisitions. Okay, well, let's hear what your interviewees had to say at the time. I started using open source before I even knew the term open source when I became curious about a North Korean missile launch. My name is Melissa Hannum, and I am just a regular lady. And I opened up Google Earth back in 2004, and I found the site where the launch had taken place. At the time, I thought Google Earth was magic, that it was just like a, a mirror reflecting what was happening in real time. But of course, it became a lot more complicated the more things I wanted to do. Melissa Hannum went on to work as deputy director at the Open Nuclear Network, an NGO that aims to reduce the risks that nuclear weapons are used in error. She's now at Stanford University. Melissa's investigations of North Korea include exploring a Pyongyang biotech facility capable of making the bacteria that causes anthrax a fatal disease. Shortly after she published her findings, North Korea labelled her riffraff and a trickster. Much of Melissa's work involves satellites, but not just the satellites you might be thinking of. So a lot of people, when they think of satellite imagery, they think of what you see in Google Maps or whatever type of mapping service you use. But there's a lot more to space-based sensors. And that's, to me, one of the two most exciting parts of satellite imagery right now. So one thing that has previously only been used by militaries is called Synthetic Aperture Radar, or SAR. And instead of using sunlight, it's actually using an active signal that bounces from the space-based sensor onto the surface of the Earth once, maybe twice or three times, and then it goes back to the sensor. And that active signal, that bounce of the radar does, in effect, make a measurement and an image that you can interpret. It's a lot more confusing to look at than red-green-blue light because our eyes are used to that, but they false-color images to help us understand what it looks like. The benefit is you don't have to rely on the sun being up, so you can see nighttime images. It pierces clouds, and then Perhaps even most excitingly, you can see uh, heavy trafficked roads in dusty, dirty kind of areas. And you can also see through the roofs of some thin roofing materials like tarps, tents, fiberglass roofs, unless they've been painted specifically with a radar reflecting material. That's incredible. So could you just give us an example of how open source researchers have used that to find cool things? 
Sure. So my colleague, Alison Puccioni, who has worked in the field as a classified intelligence analyst, as well as an open source analyst, discovered that North Korea had been preparing its rocket for launch from the Sohei launch facility. And because the roofing material on the top of the rocket launch stand that's mobile was made of uh, some kind of thin material, probably fiberglass, she could see that they were stacking the rocket ahead of time. So even though they had built that building and the train railway was covered all to hide this activity, she was still able to see the preparation ahead of time. Another thing that can be exciting, uh, another colleague of mine, former boss Jeffrey Lewis and I worked with Airbus to look through missile deployments in uh, Russia. And we could see that even though they had painted their temporary installations with radar reflecting material, because they had large garage doors that rolled up, we could see sideways into the building a little bit, not see everything inside the building, but we could see inside a bit. For others, it's the smartphone revolution, a sensor in every pocket, that has fueled an interest in open source intelligence. It really started, I think, with the launch of the iPhone back in kind of 2007, 2008, which then led to the development of lots of apps, in particular social media apps, which meant more people were kind of sharing images and thoughts and comments in real time with the entire world. I'm Elliot Higgins. I'm the founder of Bellingcat and currently the executive director. Bellingcat is an organization that is known for online open source investigations. Alongside that, you also had the development of social media platforms. You also had things like Street View start appearing from Google and uh, also satellite imagery being made available from various sources. And there's always new tools being developed and we have more access to satellite imagery and we have different resources with new social media platforms coming up. I mean, there's not many war crimes being documented on TikTok, but, you know, it's still another stream of data. So those elements combined really kind of provided the material needed to do the open source investigations. And then in 2011, I think the Arab Spring really became the kind of big catalyst for the development of the entire movement. And it's really something that's kind of just grown from there and gained more and more recognition as time has gone on. And with that growth, handy new tools have emerged, some of them simple, some of them incredibly sophisticated. We have like a big toolbox. One is reverse image search, something that's become increasingly available through things like Google image search. More and more, you're also finding facial recognition being part of some of these search engines and specific platforms being created for facial recognition searches. And it isn't just pictures. Maybe you have a fitness tracker on your wrist. Well, it might be giving away more than you realise. There's been big data leaks from exercise apps that have related to kind of military security, where we've discovered online you can find people's exercise routes that they've done, and it's actually public. But some of these end up being around patches of desert in the middle of nowhere in kind of the Middle East, and it becomes very clear that these are military people running around the edge of their base or something like that. You can track very important people from their home to where they work on a regular basis because they keep taking the same jogging route, and obviously that presents a security risk to them. And if you work with state secrets, 
then it's worth being extra careful with the apps on your smartphone. We've also found recently we're looking into these flashcard apps that you can get, you know, to teach yourself various things. And one thing people have been teaching themselves were the security details of nuclear bases they were working at. So US nuclear bases where the soldiers were basically using these apps to make notes about stuff where the camera positions, the code words they should be using, you know, different levels of security, basically everything you would need if you wanted to break in the base and get access to those nuclear weapons. So people do tend to overshare quite a bit without realising it. Internet sleuths like Elliot Higgins and Melissa Hannum aren't the people you might expect to find working for traditional intelligence agencies like MI6 or the CIA. Elliot started as a blogger who enjoyed spotting weapons in YouTube videos from Syria. Melissa described herself as a regular lady who just got really into exploring the unknown on Google Earth. So who are these people? And why do they do these investigations? The open source intelligence ecosystem is like a Star Wars bar scene. Amy Ziegert is a political scientist who studies intelligence at Stanford University. It's filled with everybody you can think of. Volunteers, profiteers, amateurs, experts, activists, hobbyists, truth seekers and deception peddlers. So. Anybody can play in this space. This makes open source intelligence amazingly democratic. But there are also risks associated with amateurs doing all the investigating. One of the things we often see in this world is that people think that they can read satellite imagery very easily. It turns out understanding what's in an image when it's taken from overhead is really an art form and it requires extensive training. So errors are pretty easy to generate in the open source intelligence world. And of course, no one gets fired if they make a mistake because most people in this world are volunteers. That's very different if you're in the US government. There are some famous examples of mistakes like this in recent memory. After the Boston Marathon bombing, for example, uh, many people online wanted to help crack the case and figure out who was responsible. And they wrongly accused a number of people. So it became sort of a vigilante mob online pointing fingers at people who turned out to be completely innocent. Recently, we've seen with the community that kind of grew around the January 6th violence in Washington, D.C. Elliot Higgins again. That was a group that some of the work they did was really good and actually seems to have been quite essential for the FBI and law enforcement to identify some of the suspects. But there have been, again, misidentifications in that. Perhaps an underlying limitation to open source intelligence is the expectation that techniques like this will solve a crime. Usually they won't, but they are a useful tool. What you do with open source investigation is you're saying, based off the information that's available, this is our best understanding of what's happened, and these are where we have gaps in our knowledge. And you can be very clear and transparent about that, and the hope is then as well that other people will see that, the detail you've provided, the links to the videos, the evidence, and they can actually take that and use that for their own work and develop it even further. Shashank, it was really interesting to sort of dip back into the archive there and hear exactly how OSINT works. But I'm interested to know what technology has been used to gather information during the war in Ukraine? Are there specific techniques that have been particularly effective? Well, some of it's really basic. So around the world, soldiers like taking photographs of themselves, it turns out. And that is not always the best thing to do from the perspective of operational security. And you'd think that the Russians would have learned this. You know, they consistently gave away their locations before the war, allowing us to track the build-up. And you'd think, hang on a minute, they would clam up. 
No, we're still seeing photographs come out. And in fact, a few weeks ago, we saw a photograph from a headquarters of the Wagner Group, which is a Russian mercenary firm linked to the Kremlin. Immediately afterwards, that photograph was geolocated, which of course means when you use features in the photograph to find out where it was taken, such as buildings or trees visible in the background. And lo and behold, the site was struck by Ukraine. A lot of people were killed. OSINT has consequences. But I think there's also a sense in which it's about triangulation. If one method doesn't work, you use another. So, for example, back in February, when we were trying to track these Russian formations, it was very cloudy. You know, satellites can't always see through clouds. There are optical satellites. Light does not penetrate clouds. But radar waves can penetrate clouds. And so synthetic aperture radar satellites or SAR satellites have been able to be used around the clock, night and day, in all weather conditions. And we could use them not to show detailed vehicles on the ground, because they weren't sort of at the resolution for that, but we could use them to show when a Russian camp had emptied out and its forces moving closer towards the Ukrainian border. So again, that's a method that just wouldn't have been open to us 25 years ago. But thanks to technology, thanks to the commercialization of that technology, because you have all these commercial firms in the SAR space, we can now use those techniques in a really effective way. In the interviews we just heard, um, Elliot Higgins made quite a dark joke about not being able to detect war crimes on TikTok yet. But um, even that seems to have turned into some sort of reality now, doesn't it? You're absolutely right. I mean, TikTok has long been seen as a place for frivolous, uh, short, amusing clips. But actually, all of these social media channels are used by young people around the world. And that includes young soldiers in the Russian army and in the Ukrainian army. And so, for example, little TikTok clips of convoys passing by a particular stretch of road were really important for us to be able to identify which unit was where. If a particular tank was known to pass by a stretch of road, for example, near Belgorod in Western Russia, near the Ukrainian border, and we knew that that tank was associated with this or that brigade or, or formation, all of a sudden we have this source of information that military planners call order of battle, how many units and where they are. So even TikTok, even the most sort of casual ephemeral of platforms, is still incredibly useful for OSINT. Shashank, when you made that podcast last year, you were thinking about the, the rapid expansion of OSINT. Do you think that the war in Ukraine has really accelerated the adoption of the technology around the world? The war has produced this torrent of material, video clips and snippets of this or that, snippets of war crimes in suburbs around Kiev, Russia's retreat, evidence of casualties, this cacophony of data. We're all consuming so much more of it than we did. Are we all using OSINT more than we did? Are we all personally logging on to Telegram and watching the latest Russian movements? Possibly not. I mean, there's still a sense in which this is very raw intelligence. It can be misinterpreted very easily, right? Um, the war has resulted in a lot of bad OSINT, people who think they can track the war through this granular data, but actually don't have the background information. They don't understand the breakdown of the Russian army. They don't understand the details of military movements. And so it's easy to misunderstand 
understand OSINT. In a way, it's sort of trying to do too much of your own research. It still needs a degree of mediation. I can look at all these videos and I still need experts to tell me what this really means, whether this means that the Russian army is going in that direction or this one, uh, where that video was shot. Was it shot in Kherson province or was it shot in next door Zaporizhia? You know, there's a lot of expertise involved in this. So although we talk about the democratization of OSINT, that's absolutely true. It's given us access to more data and insight than we had in the past. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. This still requires a degree of care, a degree of expertise, and I think a degree of judgment and judiciousness in interpreting all of this stuff. Last year on Babbage, we explored the impact that OSINT could have on statecraft and crises around the world. The situation in Ukraine has unfortunately provided an environment in which to test some of those ideas. Coming up, we'll examine just how disruptive open source technology has been in a war zone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Babbage, we're exploring how open source intelligence, or OSINT, has had an impact on the war in Ukraine. And with Shashank Joshi, the Economist's defense editor. Shashank, if we're talking about geopolitics and intelligence, there's an argument that state secrets are hugely important. Now, OSINT makes the world a much more transparent place, but is that always a good thing? Can you explain that to me? Well, Alok, you and I are journalists, so for us, transparency is obviously a good thing. We try and publish stories, we try and reveal things other people often don't want us to reveal. So it's an unalloyed good for us. But I think it does affect geopolitics. In a way, secrecy was a lubricant of diplomacy in the past. If you were cutting a deal with another government, perhaps one that was going to be very controversial at home, you might want to keep bits of it secret. You might not want to tell your own public about what you'd agreed. You might not want to say that you'd agreed to move these troops and withdraw them from this particular place. Perhaps it would be easier to have a more discreet secret arrangement that no one ever need find out about other than your negotiating party. OSINT allows us to probe those details. It allows us to see the things that were supposed to be kept away in the shadows. And you could argue it makes diplomacy that little bit harder, for instance. In fact, last year, in the episode of Babbage about OSINT, I spoke to John Brennan, who's a former director of the CIA, and to Amy Zegart, who's a political scientist. She studies US intelligence at Stanford University about exactly that phenomenon, how open source intelligence can disrupt traditional statecraft. Open source intelligence has been a part of intelligence forever. 
in the Cold War, roughly 80% of information in a typical intelligence report actually came from open information, not secrets. And so the value that intelligence agencies have historically played is marrying that open source intelligence with the documents stolen from the prime minister's safe or the intercepted telephone communication. But what's happened today is that open source intelligence is now foundational. It's not just that you sprinkle it on top. And because there's so much data, tools that can sift through vast reams of information like artificial intelligence algorithms are much more valuable than they used to be before. Amy Ziegert warns that open source intelligence can speed up the pace at which crises evolve, and it increases the number of players. Imagine the Cuban Missile Crisis were being played out today on Twitter with all of these open source sleuths actually figuring out that there were Soviet nuclear installations on the island of Cuba. Instead of 13 days, the president would have maybe 13 hours or 13 minutes to figure out what to do. And so it reduces the maneuverability of both sides in a conflict if information is fully transparent. Secrecy in some ways gets a bad rap. Secrecy provides room to maneuver, room to de-escalate, room for both sides to save face in a crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was essentially resolved because very few people knew the facts. The Soviet Union agreed to remove its missiles on Cuba if America also removed its own missiles from Turkey. And America insisted that that be kept secret. If the world had known about the withdrawal of America's Jupiter missiles from Turkey, maybe the outcome would have been very different. So, do big, powerful states like America need to keep secrets? Open source intelligence is dramatically democratizing the ability of just about anybody to collect and analyze important information. And that's bad for the United States. It means that the United States is losing its relative intelligence edge. Others disagree. If there was more open source information publicly available, satellite imagery, for instance, as well as more insight into what was happening coming across the Atlantic Ocean to Cuba, I could see that there would not have been that 11th hour crisis. John Brennan was the director of the CIA from 2013 to 2017. There would have been indications of the movement of those missiles earlier on and it might have, in fact, prevented them from getting set up and being actually operational. So I think that when I look back over the course of history, a number of events, whether it be the Cuban Missile Crisis, whether it be the Iraq WMD debacle, as well as some other historic events, um, the more publicly available information that is available to societies, as well as to governments, it might have resulted in a better scenario evolving from the standpoint of being able to prevent unnecessary wars, as well as to divulge the truth, despite what maybe some government officials or policymakers were telling their countries publicly. In terms of the impact of all of this, how do you see this as affecting secrecy and, and particularly the balance of power between the state and what one might have said was its monopoly on, on secrets and information and the public, including ordinary people who can discover some of the things that previously only state agencies could have done? Does this erode secrecy in a fundamental way, in your view? I do think open source information provides average citizens a much greater insight and perspective in terms of what's happening around the globe. And it does erode 
the monopoly that uh, nation states, especially intelligence and security services, have had on certain types of information and developments in their own country as well as countries around the world. Bellingcat, the organization founded and run by Elliot Higgins, has pitted itself against Russia on numerous occasions. An open-source investigative team, Bellingcat, has revealed the identity of a Russian intelligence officer. He is believed to be connected to the downing of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 over occupied Donetsk region in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Bellingcat claims it's identified the second suspect linked by Britain to the poisoning of a former Russian spy and his daughter. A new investigation, meantime, has found that a group of Russian special agents followed opposition leader Alexei Navalny four years before he was poisoned. They were even called out in a press conference by Russia's head of foreign intelligence. We get a lot of pushback now from Russia, and it's because over the years we've exposed quite a lot of wrongdoing by them. I mean, we've, we've done kind of MH17, which showed their involvement, and that then led us to uncover the involvement of Russia more broadly in the conflict in Ukraine. The work we've done on Syria, we've shown how they've been responsible for airstrikes on civilian targets. With the assassination stuff, starting with the scripple poisoning, I mean, we've found, I think, now 10 assassinations that are linked to Russian security services. So we are certainly exposing stuff that they don't want to see. I mean, we've recently exposed the nerve agent program that's in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. And we know that our work is taken seriously by policymakers in a whole range of different organisations and bodies that Russia has membership of. And I think it does make them very uncomfortable that this information is getting out there and still getting out there. And I think the reaction of having the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service attacking Bellingcat and saying they've got a feeling that we're working with Western intelligence and that kind of stuff is um, reflective of how much not only they're worried about us, but also how poor they've been at kind of making a good case against us. But they can never really present any evidence to support their feelings. How, how threatened do you feel by that when you're name-checked personally by Russian intelligence officers who have done some of the things that you've catalogued? Does that worry you? I, I think we kind of feel like, you know, we can't annoy Russia any more than we already have. So we might as well just keep on publishing stuff. So, you know, we are concerned about our security and we've had cyber attacks against us and we have to be concerned about our physical security when we're traveling around. But we don't let it rule our life. We aren't like hiding indoors but it's like if I travel now, if I go to a hotel, I won't eat food in the hotel just in case because I don't know who's working there. So I'll go to the kind of local supermarket and just buy some really rubbish sandwiches to eat in the hotel rather than whatever's on the room service menu. So given the risk to investigators and to states, can open source intelligence be regulated? One of the things that I became aware of, the more technical and the more skilled I became is that there was information out there that made me concerned that if I provided it to the public, I might actually be helping an adversary. Melissa Hannum again. For me, the biggest concern is how do I prevent the spread of weapons of mass destruction further? We were looking at video footage of North Korean missile launches. And by slowing down the playback and looking at it, we were able to see some details that could perhaps explain why the missile kept failing. And although it's perhaps newsworthy, it's of interest to the public, we felt that we would not share that information because we didn't want North Korea to get to work fixing the missiles. 
what I would be very much interested in is creating a kind of code of ethics a standard by which open source analysts can work, much like investigative journalists, for example. I think we may face some growing pains, and I don't want to lose the public trust because of a few bad actors and what is a well-meaning and, and quite accomplished group of open source analysts. It's important to make these decisions now, as open source intelligence isn't going anywhere. I do think that in years past, there were efforts by the United States government, as well as other governments, to prevent the release of certain types of information that was being collected by companies and businesses, whether it be via satellites or other types of things. John Brennan again. But I do think it was basically putting fingers in the, in the dike that uh, these cracks were forming. And now I think that there is a recognition that you may be able to delay or limit what information is available. But ultimately, I do think much of this information that is now being accessed as a result of technology is going to find its way into the public domain. Okay, Shashank, so Amy Zegart there said that if OSINT had been available during the Cuban Missile Crisis, that things would have played out much more rapidly and, and that would have perhaps been dangerous. Could that theory be applied to Ukraine too? I mean, this is just a hypothetical, but has the war been made more intense because of OSINT? I think it's exposed us more to the war. But if you think about the build-up to it, Alok, OSINT was so important in giving us confidence that what Western governments were saying was correct, that Russia was planning this big invasion, that it intended to topple the government in Kiev, things that seemed absolutely outlandish. OSINT helped us understand them. And by doing that, I think it took the wind out of Russia's sails. It made it more difficult for Russia to stick to its original plan of conducting a false flag attack, a fictionalised provocation attributed to Ukraine. And it helped galvanise an international coalition. Because even if everyone wasn't on the same page, even if everyone did not agree that Russia was doing this, and US and UK intelligence were in some ways not believed universally, once the invasion kicked off, OSINT helped us understand that, in fact, what they were saying was absolutely correct. And it galvanised Europeans and Americans and others into putting together this enormous sanctions package. Once the war has broken out, I think OSINT also helped discredit Russia's claim that everything was going well. It made it absolutely clear that Russia's army was bogged down outside of Kiev. We could see this 40-mile convoy stuck outside the capital city. Indeed, Alok, we published a piece showing satellite imagery scanning over this 40-mile convoy, looking over it as it was stuck outside of Kiev. And all of those things, I think, made it absolutely clear Russia's invasion had failed. Perhaps that contributed ever so slightly to the Kremlin's realisation that this was a goner, that they had to withdraw and start again in the east of the country. So I don't think the war was made more intense by OSINT. I think it was certainly made more transparent. Um, That may have had some perverse effects for Ukraine. We don't know yet the way in which open source intelligence perhaps gave away its own dispositions, gave away some of the details of its own uh, forced posture, its own intentions. Open source intelligence cuts both ways. It allows us to see adversaries, but of course it also allows adversaries to see us. And I think we have to remember, you know, it's not just a one-way mirror here. How have the Russians responded to the fact that their movements and their troop manoeuvres and everything can be seen a bit more easily than perhaps before? The Russians are unsurprisingly learning some lessons about operational security. 
So, for example, they're covering up some of the patches on their uniforms, they're covering up vehicle markings, and they're trying to obscure some of the means by which people are getting this information. So, on railway movement, previously it was possible to track Russian military convoys on websites that track Russian railways. The Russian government has now tried to suspend some of those services. Having said that, in a way, what's surprising is how much a lot of this is still available. When I talk to open source analysts, they say that when they look at Telegram or when they look at VK, which is a sort of Russian equivalent of Facebook, it's basically as bad as it's always been. There are still incredible levels of detail being given away. Soldiers just geotagging pictures of their bases, telling people where they are. I was told by one analyst of a individual, a volunteer, who was moving to Kherson province in the south. He posted a picture of every village he drove through from Rostov in Russia all the way down to Ukraine. Basically a sort of suicide mission. You could see the supply lines that the Russian army was using. That's an incredible degree of almost naivety. Six months into this war, there is in a way still this astonishing transparency and the Russian army seems unable to stop it. So OSINT sounds like it might still be in its earliest days. And I mean, how do you place OSINT's importance in this sort of history of warfare, Shashank? Is it one of the most major advances and things that have happened because of new technology? We are undoubtedly in a new era of OSINT. But what I think is interesting is that OSINT is a really old phenomenon. Like with much technology, Alok, its prehistory goes back longer than we often suppose. And I just wanted to give you an example of that. In the 1850s, the US Army set up a special military commission to examine how European armies were modernising themselves. The US Army at that time was very small. It was tiny, scattered in these little forts. It wasn't very advanced. And so this commission looked at civilian photographs taken of gun emplacements in Sevastopol. Sevastopol being, of course, the port in Crimea, which is a very, very important port in the war today, being struck by Ukrainian missiles. And they used those photographs taken from the Crimean War battlefield in 1853 to 1856 as a source of military intelligence. That was the first example of the US Army using civilian photographs as military intelligence. And I think that was proto-OSINT. That was a kind of very early type of open source intelligence. So this goes back a long way. And what OSINT looks like in another 10 years is going to be very different. Perhaps it will involve more use of commercial radar satellites that will be more numerous, that will be tracking the world 24-7. Perhaps it will look at data sets that don't even exist yet in the way that TikTok as a vehicle for data did not exist 10 or 15 years ago. Perhaps it will rely on artificial intelligence to fuse and analyse all of this cacophonous data coming in from so many places to impose some kind of order on it. OSINT is going to continually pierce the veil of opacity in future battlefields in ways we don't yet understand. And I think as journalists, it's absolutely our job to make sure that we have a really good handle on that, Alok. Well, Shashank, thank you very much. And as always, after speaking to you, I'm fascinated and terrified. Thanks, Shashank. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read Shashank's essay on the promise of OSINT on our website, or you can keep up with his latest analyses of the Ukraine conflict in the weekly edition of The Economist. To get a special introductory subscription rate, head to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. 
The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 